Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and my friend, Sean Rimkunis, who's in his nice little office on the Google box. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Today's Bach quote of the day. I was, whoever is equally industrious will succeed equally well. Today, we will discuss Brandenburg number four in G major. All right, and we are four. For those who are unfamiliar, the orchestration for this particular uh, concerto consists of two soloists, a violino, which is a violin, and flauto, which is flute, or in this case, flauto dolce, which is actually recorders in the particular one that we're referencing. And then we have violin one and two. We have viola, violoncello, which is the long name for the cello, viol uh, violine, which is uh, actually, which might actually be violone, which is, I believe, bass, and then continuo, which is usually either harpsichord, organ, or any of the other keyboard instruments. Um, Beautiful. Now, before we move on, if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us, and you will find our social media and other ways that you can contribute to said podcast. So, Sean, let us look at this first movement, the Allegro. This consists of three movements, Allegro, Andante, and Presto. And in the first one, you know, the first thing that strikes me is that, you know, it's in three, in this case, three, eight time. Exactly. And, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about three and how mm -hmm. it's representative of the time period because it was seen as the holy, P, you know, the holy time signature, any sort of compound meter, any divisions of three, always mm -hmm. important. But the one thing I want to ask you about first is, as I mentioned, this of the flauto dolce, right, the, the recorder. And, mm -hmm. you know, the recorder has a little bit of a different sound to the flute. And yeah, you could do flute for this movement. So I suppose we were saying before it's orchestrator's choice, but why do you think this one is the one chosen to be with recorder? Well, I'm not so sure about if this one's the only one because I think it's definitely a performance practice to have recorder on mm -hmm. some of these pieces. So um, it might be just a, a nice replacement. They both play in the same register. They obviously, mm -hmm timbrally they sound different one sounds more wooden one sounds more wholesome than the other does mm -hmm. um and i think it just comes down to what you prefer i mean if you're going to do it with performance practice you're going to assume you're going to play with recorder because that's how bach imagined it okay. um, if you're playing it maybe in the 20th century and you have some really great flute players you say you know what i don't want to play recorder i want to play flute mm -hmm. and, the, and the sound totally changes which is really cool and, and why I, might to change that and the timbre is different why would you make that change to flute well i guess it depends on the ensemble it depends on who's playing depends on what you're looking for um because with the flute the flute definitely i listened to a version with the flute and the flute is definitely more present than the than the recorder but mm -hmm. the recorder has capabilities that the flute does not which is the, the recorder has a little bit more flexibility in itself where it's able to, you know, 
play around with kind of different like tonalities and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting. I think it's a really kind of a really cool discussion, but I think it's better that we save that discussion for a recorder or a flute player, because I'm sure they will have more to say about that. But I'm sure, tell me what you thought. I, I really liked the, I think I was going to ask you because one of my question was, do you prefer the recorders or the flutes in this piece? I think in personally, I mean, I love the flute, but I personally think the recorder fits better. Like you were saying, I, it doesn't stand out as much. You know, you mentioned the flute was more pound, blends better with the rest of the string orchestra. There's Definitely. something about the timbre of the instrument. It just, it, it doesn't, it's not as piercing. Yeah. And mm -hmm. not that the flute sounds bad, obviously. I like right. the flute, but I think the fact that it's able to meld with the rest of the instruments makes it much more um, uh, harmonic, I'll say. Right. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I, something I noticed right away in this piece is how Bach is able to have this microscope. Mm -hmm. And he's able to zoom in really, really quickly and zoom out immediately. But he starts out with this beautiful... Um, beautiful G major chord, and we know that the melody it is and that's sort of like our first like macro moment, and we can call that our A section, mm -hmm. is because that's what the first thing we hear, and we kind of can maybe get attached to that. And something that Bach does really well is we talked about this last time by using arpeggios, by using scales by using other support systems in his music to build in these sort of uh, really intense and also sort of less focused moments. And then we get the micro, which he then zooms in as fast as he can with these microscopes. And then you get these And it's very like very metered rather than when we get to the And then we get more of a I think you you said a really great word the other day when we were talking about the third, where we were talking about lilting mm -hmm. and the idea of just kind of like feeling it out, not really having like a dead center. Because I mean, it's like it's a very bouncy three because yeah. we're sort of feeling it that way. And then when we get to those smaller micro moments, then we get to the and he does those really well, where he's able to zoom in and zoom out. And we then can figure out where our A sections are then to define our other episodes that are in the piece, which are really, really cool. What was something that struck you in mm -hmm. this first movement? Say that again, you cut out. No, it's okay. What struck you in this in this first movement? What, what kind of took your attention? Um, well, you know, the first thing that I, I noticed, especially when looking at the score, is that it's the first time that he's defined solo, or at least from the score alone, defined solo uh, flute and solo violin. Um, or in this case, really, it's just the violin that has a specific solo marking. Um, right. but sometimes the flute will double or the, in this case, the recorder, um, will double that solo part. However, the fact mm. that there's a solo instrument, you know, it's almost like it's hearkening back to, it makes me think of like a voice where the rest of the group is uh, accompanying a voice, uh, a, who has a, their own part, a soloist part, and then everyone else is providing backup. Um, right. but the one thing that also struck yeah. me was... We're obviously in the key of um, G. Mm -hmm. So obviously, so for those who don't know, that means you have one sharp in the key signature, which is in this case F sharp. However, it's very obvious that he throws in a lot of these C sharps mm -hmm. all over the place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, why do you think he did that? 
Well, I think he's trying to go from... Well, let's kind of look at this. Well, he has the first few measures in G and D, which is mm -hmm. basically you have our, our home key of G major to the dominant, which is D major. And as he moves along, uh, I think we sort of start to make a transition to A major, which then relates to then F sharp major. And then he goes into D major and then back to G major. Check out the passage. It's the 11, 12, 13, 14. So right at 14, we're definitely almost in like an E minor sort of feel. E, G, E, A. A, G, F sharp, A, F sharp, B. B, A, G. So almost, it's really like this really cool sequence that he puts together. And just as I mentioned with those micro moments, we get sort of very quick sequential movement in the bass, which is almost a really important part because then we hear that and we're like, oh, Oh, I know what he's doing now. It makes a lot of sense that he's doing something like this. And it's, you're right. I think he adds it in there to add in the suspense, to add in the drama that is this first movement. Because um, in many ways, you said to me when we started, I asked you if you liked it or not. And you said something that really struck me was the playfulness of this first movement. And mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. So something that I wrote down was... I believe that this movement is extremely, extremely secular mm -hmm. and extremely dance-like. It is very much. You could easily see this being a, a court dance, right? And and this and Bach was also known for writing for amateur musicians. Mm -hmm. So this almost feels like this was written for some amateur musicians to play together, except for the violin part. But I'll get well, to that yeah. because, which is really interesting, because. There's a really crazy section for the violinist, but I said this last time. What does he do in that section with the fast violin part? Yeah, so I noted that too. The the rant like thirty second note pat. Are we speaking? We're talking about the thirty second note part. Absolutely. What does he do there? Yeah, hang on. Let me just scroll down to it. Uh, yeah. Where is it? Let's is get it? there. That Let's is where, measure. Where, where is that? I believe it's sort of like maybe. Okay, so he has all these crazy things around maybe he, he gives a little of a solo to the violin at major 83 maybe just basically arpeggiations more arpeggiations more arpeggiations. oh that part okay that's not the uh, oh you're talking about the part as a whole right so these are all 16th notes going through it's right it's an entirely soloed part um we're not entirely soloed because they have backup playing but for the most part it's right just to feature them and yeah. then you get this quick part at 120, what is it, 122, 3, 4, 5, 125, where um, they finally bring in the uh, recorder to double the part, but then they cut to long tones, um, right. and then they do go back, and then they come back at 133, and so they're constantly dropping in and out. But where is that 30-second note pattern? Oh, there it is, 187. 187, beautiful. Now I think I think this section is is unbelievable. What is what is what is Bach basically doing this whole time? Say that one more time. What is what is Bach writing in the in the violin part? What is something he's just doing? It's I mean, really it's simple. all scales, like we've talked about before. All but scales. Obviously, anyone who looks at this is going to be daunted by the thirty-second notes, right. even if it is just scales. Right, but it, it sounds a lot harder than it actually is. But yes, fact, agreed. 
<laughs> but to a professional musician, this doesn't look as bad because it's basically you're playing around like an A major scale the whole time, mm -hmm. I believe, in that sort of uh, arena. And basically, I, I wrote down, it's fascinating, it's beautiful, and it's so expressive, but <laughs> we had this really great discussion where we talked about the movie Amadeus, where Salieri's like, he's just writing scales. Mm -hmm. but which, is always... which is all it is, literally. There's yeah, no jumping. Yeah. It's all oh, almost entirely stepwise motion, up exactly. and down, uh -huh. and you know, an occasional little like third jump here or there, but uh, nothing too crazy. It's just the speed of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's just the speed that is definitely used and there are a lot of dance-like features in this movement mm -hmm. where we have these like solo like moments where you give a soloist like you give like a dance solo to like a um someone who's just dancing in court and you're kind of like woohoo yeah and i think that almost that sort of community is sort of what buck's kind of going for in this mm -hmm. first movement um and One thing something sorry go ahead and i did note right now oh i'm sorry go ahead no, no, I we there was sort of a lag and I cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say right after those 30 second notes and mm -hmm. at measure 217, uh -huh. there's this cool part in the um violin solo part where yeah. the part is split and they're all and it's pretty much in sixth split in sixth the whole time. Um mm -hmm. where yeah. you have this duet for violin. it might not even be duet, it could be, you know. I mean you could have the, the violinist playing. The, are you are you are you talking about 215 to um, uh, almost like 225-ish? Uh, it's 213, 14, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, 217. Yeah. Although, no, so I guess it is 215, yeah. So, so those are actually triple stops. And so that right. means that the violin would be playing all of that by himself. Right. But to yeah. your point about it being, uh, if you were to write it for less experienced musicians, they might not be able to do that. <laughs> and therefore, no, you could have that. someone double that part if you right. were wanting to show off someone's ability to duet. So you could have them do that. But right. um, yeah. in box Although, time, obviously, it probably would have been common practice that a court musician would have to know how to do that. Although amateur musicians at the time were almost at the level of professional. So you have to think that because of that level of professionality, where the level of those professionals were at that time too as well. And that's right. really impressive as well because of um, Bach's amazing playing and writing. And um, this, this movement is beautiful. And something mm -hmm. I also like about this movement is that sometimes when we return to the A theme, we don't actually get the... The melody we get we get the um, sort of a minor version of the melody which is really mm -hmm. cool so when we return to an a theme we might say oh thank god we're at a but no actually we're not right we're in another episode because we're actually not hitting g major yet and he mm -hmm. just recreates the theme in a minor key which is really cool and i really enjoy that um and i love the uh the just the yum it is we can talk about this for such a long time but if we can sort of sum it up in just a little bit of words we might just say that this movement is just again another instance where bach takes nothing and makes something with it pretty much you know and it's really cool i really enjoyed this first movement anything else that you noticed about this first movement hunter uh i just one one other part that stood out to me is um sure. i like the contrast at three uh, 
was it 311, I think, um, between where he has these sustained long tones underneath the, the moving part. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, I think it makes a nice effect because uh, while the recorders and violin is, are going, or solo violinists are going, not crazy, but I mean, they do have 16th note passages. <laughs> yeah. He's shifting between, and then and then he does give it to the, the other violins where we talked about it with the other piece where he trades parts. So people who are moving on 16th notes now go to long tones and then long tones to, to 16th notes and the mm-hmm. violin uh, soloist never stops. Right. Check out this other really cool part that I like. Check out almost at the end of the first movement where we get to, I'm going to pull up a measure number for you in just one second. Can you go to measure 4, 19, 20, 21, 42, 423. Oh my goodness, 423. So many measures. Measure 423. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. We have a few instances of this throughout this movement. But we get this. Which is really cool. And he gets, he finally creates two over three. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, one. It's, again, takes, uh, need a lot of a haystack and makes it mm-hmm. into a, uh, a palace. I don't know how he does it, but does I think it that's so something. Well. Bar- I think that's something Baroque composers were very good at. Him in particular, where, um, you know, it might seem chaotic as you get to that point, and yet the order winds up coming out of nowhere, um, and it just miraculously somehow works into. You know, you could feel that overarching, like you said, the um, the two over three, where we haven't done that the whole piece. And yet here, it just, it fits. Exactly. I love it. It's Leading to the nice fermata at the end. It's so, so nice. And it is so resolute. I love it so much. But let's talk about the second movement. Sure. Because this one is definitely really interesting. Um, and this one, as Hunter said earlier, and very short, exactly. Almost, I believe it's only three pages in the score. Um uh, box movements are usually pretty short. Um, second movements are pretty short um, because he wants to get to the exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but here's what I wrote to talk about the beginning of this piece. I wrote that it is very slow, very mm-hmm. delicate, and it, this movement almost feels like a Fabergé egg. If you push it too far, <laughs> it'll crack. And I think it's just very beautiful. And I also wrote down no sudden movements, or you will scare the cat. And, and that's sort of, <laughs> if I was going to rehearse our ensemble and talk about that, that's what I would talk about when, when that would come to mind. Um, I also said that it's very slow and decisive. Um, and it, like, like we were saying with some of these slower movement uh, in these Brandenburg concertos is that it really does allow for more motivic meaning and sort of like expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are in the key of E minor. Um, your takeaway from what I've said so far or anything else that you're thinking? Well, yeah. So something I think that, you know, I find it happens often in the minor sections, um, because it allows for more coloration is this particular movement is riddled with accidentals. Um, and obviously it's with the intention of moving from, from key to key, but still I find this happens more often in the minor sections because minor 
is a very broad term as we, you know, there's, there's major, right? Ma a major is a, a pretty broad term, but it's pretty all encompassing. Minor, mm -hmm. we know there are so many different kinds of minor and it, each have their own sound. And I feel like by adding a lot of accidentals, even if it's for the purpose of moving to keys, not just for accidental coloration, it still gives the, the, the piece a, um, not a, Dark, but not necessarily in a negatively dark, or or not necessarily in a sad dark tone. You know, what I mean, because most people think minor, they think sad. But at this time, mm -hmm. that wasn't necessarily a so sad. How, you know, um, it might even have been with Meredith. How, um, you know, mm -hmm. the the key the keys at the time, the tonal system was not thought of the way we do. So we associate minor with sad, right? And therefore, right. we assume they did as well back then, but that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. So, especially if you go far enough back, it just sure. meant something different. So, by him not really um, following just one set of minor, mm -hmm. it, it keeps us from having this sad association with it. Just, it's beautiful in its own way, and you almost don't get the sense that it's minor. It's very clearly minor, but it gives you the illusion of it not being minor. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or if I'm just babbling, but that's what I get from it. Right, yeah. It can be reverent. Yes, it can be. Without being sad. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And something that's really impressive about this movement is that this, mostly the this whole piece, this whole second movement is very unison. There's not mm -hmm. a lot of breakaway moments for individual no. instruments, except for maybe measure... Um, 26, 27, 28, 30. We get to measure 30 on page 124. We get to... And that almost acts as a moment for the the recorder or the flute to sort of embellish a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. And that almost acts as sort of like a cadenza in a way to let the almost play over a chord. He lets the recorder do the same thing one more time. And let's see if there are any other really other moments in this piece with um nope uh we really get the last one in measures let's see 65 67 68 69 right which mm -hmm. is really interesting and i think that is just it speaks volumes to exactly what you were talking about with sort of not begrudging unison but also just kind of like a um uh, almost like a response to the first movement, just kind of slowing down, just kind of like wanting to try to find that center of peace that they were obviously longing for in, in this movement. And one thing which adds to your concept that you had of reverence is mm -hmm. because it's unison, it is reminiscent of choir and church. You know, we, we said this is obviously a secular piece, but I think there's an allusion to non-secular choir. Um, you know, everyone singing together in unison slowly, it gives that sense, like you said, of reverence as you would have in a non-secular choir. Right, right, yeah. I, I think this is very expressive, but mm -hmm. again, Bach doesn't do very much, but I think he does He does um, just enough to know that we're very serious in this movement. And like I said, this Fabergé egg of a second movement, where <laughs> it, just, it, it just has to be so perfect and just mm -hmm. so quiet and just not touched and just kind of like perfectly placed and you just kind of have to like look at it and you just kind of have to just kind of like let it go and not even do too much to it because it speaks volumes and uh working together in this movement isn't 
very hard. I, I think we've heard some more challenging second movements, but this one is just very focused on on building um, sort of themes and building unison lines together. Mm-hmm. Um, and here comes the interesting part. Uh, let's go to the cadence at the end of this movement. And let's look at the last two measures. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to scratch my beard. Have we seen the same cadence before? Let's see here. Have we seen the same cadence before? Have we seen the same cadence before? Are you referring to in this piece in particular? No, no, in another piece that we might have heard. Uh, well, I mean, what do we say? This is E minor, so this is cadencing to E minor. Um, nope, nope. We're going from... Check out the last two measures. Do we end in E minor? No, oh, no, no, we end back in G. Nope. No? We do not end in G. B, uh, let's see, B, B. Oh, no, wait, that's, that's, wow, stupid, that's treble clef. Um, <laughs> DJ, I was reading the whole thing in bass clef, which is ironic, because that's not my first key. Um, oh, my goodness. Or not my first clef. All right, so we have D sharp, we have B, we have down here, still D sharp, B, and we have, oh, that's, what is that? Uh, that wouldn't, oh, that's bass clef. Uh, and we have B, so B sharp, D sharp, and uh, C-E-F sharp. F sharp, yeah. Oh, so it's a B chord. Right, so what do we have the chord previous to that? Prior to that, we have, let's see, A, what's that, A-E, A-E, A, E, and, I really hate this. Uh, I really hate. The, I really hate C clef. Um, right. I don't yeah. ever have to read it. What is I'll that? I'll give you a clue. It's a C. It's a C. That one's a C. That one's a. That's what's a. That's a high C. And ironically, a very bad way for Bach to end a cadence. But so we have um, A C and E. Right. Which is basically a. Well, that's an A chord. A minor. Yep. So we get yep. A minor to B major. To B major. Where I mean, you're going that... up. You're going up a half step, but right. Where have we heard that cadence before? Uh, I don't know. Where did we hear that before? I believe we heard that same exact cadence in Brandenburg Three. Which movement? The second movement. Okay, so he's a, well, he's a fan of just the half step movement at the end off his <laughs> his middle sections. Well, I think it's interesting because he doesn't end on E, right? Get, Which you'd expect because he started in E. Right. And here's something interesting. Um, he ends on B minor. Look at the last, look at look at that last fifth measure before the end. He ends on B minor, not B major. Mm-hmm, right? Before the end. Is that interesting? One, two, three, four, five. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, he, he ends on this E minor. He ends on E unanimously. Except mm-hmm. for the hold on. He ends on a well. The the only part that doesn't have a, a E is the um, is the um, alto part. Well, the uh, viola part, which plays a G. But we get our E minor to B minor, and then that right. line transcends to the first recorder part. And then we get that same cadence that we had from Brandenburg three. So he goes from E minor to A minor to right. end on. 
B, I'm um, e sorry, he goes E to B minor, then to A minor, to end on E, uh, to end on B major. That's right, exactly. And what is B major in the key of E minor? B major in the key of E minor, is that a fifth? That is our dominant, of course. It's such a bright sound. And it's so, it's almost very like, oh my goodness, wow. And, and is that intentionally to return to the brightness of G in the last one? I think so. And Hunter, I think you nailed it perfectly because now we're going to talk about the presto. Let's, presto. Talk about the pres let's talk about the presto. And specifically, uh, wow. Specifically, let's talk about... Let's talk about a fugue because usually these third movements end up being fugues mm -hmm. very easily. And we can then sort of determine what's actually happening. Um, who has the subject in the first? Well, part. I'm going to, in the, I mean, well, considering the first three part, four parts, five parts, they don't play for like at least four measures and the other ones don't play for 20 measures. It's going <laughs> to have to be one of the lower voices. Sure, sure. Um, who, who is the subject voice? So well, when we talk I mean, about, the viola about, comes in first. Right, right, absolutely. So when we talk about fugues, we talk about subject and counter-subject. And the right. subject ends up being the main theme. The subject, mm -hmm. the counter-subject end ends up being more rumbly and sort of more playful. So then we can say that who is then playing the counter-subject? Mm -hmm. Who oh, is that was playing? a question? <laughs> yeah, who is the... Yeah. Oh, I wasn't sure because you, you had cut out. So I was like, is he asking me or is he just going to like say it? Um, no, it's okay. Who's playing the counter subject? Hunter? Well, if you jump to if you jump to where it actually is presto, you have two very distinctive parts. You have the viola, which has this, um, uh, what is that? A D to, what is it? D to G jump. D to G. And then. Right. And then you yeah. have the violoncello and the continuo who are doubling the same part, which to right. me seems like the counter. That is the counter subject. That's right. And who then comes back within the counter subject? Who, who, who plays the subject after the viola? That looks like violin two. That's right. 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 And then let's keep going. We get some in the two violoncello and the um, uh, in the continuo part, we get some nice uh, se uh, second species counterpoint. Dun, 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 bum, 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 right? And then who takes over the melody? Who takes uh... over the subject? Well, the subject looks like comes back in with the solo violin and was that violin one? I that's think? right. That's absolutely right. And you can say, oh, Sean, why isn't the um, the D to G part played in the violin two part? Well, I mean, it is mimicking the previous melody, but mm -hmm. we're, we're sort of transitioning from one key to another where I believe we're sort of still in G, but I, um, I believe it's sort of mimicking the other version but this is our first um uh introduction to a count almost to a subject but the subject is reversed in that way so that the violin two gets that now and that's really interesting and then that's how bach basically frames this whole movement and then we get different variations of the same melody over and over and over again and i think that's basically how you break down this movement um and Fuchs can be kind of hard to listen to, but mm -hmm. how does Bach keep our interest? How does he keep our interest in this movement? How does he keep it going? 
Um, well, I mean, that's a broad question. I mean, he, he does many things here. I mean, he has people constantly coming in again with that, like at 20, what is that? 23. Finally, the, the two recorders come in and they have the subject Mm -hmm. while the other parts seem, I mean, they're just, they're going on and on and on. Right. So I guess he keeps your interest by making sure there's no lull in right. it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's, you're, you're constantly listening to something and that like he does with other movements, the, uh, moving line is passed around from person to person. Right. Um, mm -hmm. looks like solo violin and violin one starting at uh where is it where, where is it measure 31 they have a doubled part and then their part remains doubled um and the long tones are in the recorder and then everyone cuts out so it's a big stark change right. um starting at 38 39 40 41 41 yeah on mm -hmm. So that's just, that's just an observation. And obviously silence can be as uh, enticing as sound. So when everyone cuts out, everyone's like, wait, what just happened? Right. And it's really interesting that then we get our, our one of our first chamber-esque moments between all these different openings, right? Because the violin keeps going, mm -hmm. and then the, the recorder one takes over the part, which is the subject. Yeah, they have a subject. And then recorder two comes in two bars later so With then the we get our so then we get our two bar fugue going which is really mm -hmm. cool um and then that actually goes on for a very long time very until, long yes and, until we get to measure 61 62 65 66 or sorry, sorry i should say 63 where we then get our first um violin entry after a long time so we get some very small motivic analysis and then what does the um uh what 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 we sort of digress for a while and then look at look at measure sixty six and what exactly um, these upper three voices are doing. They're then just kind of playing along with the sequence against one another, um, and then we're sort of again back to another version of second or first species counterpoint going forward into this movement. Which so, is interesting because at the same point he also changes the the voicing or rather the um he, he the orchestration has changed because now. I don't think it's happened in any of the other movements, but you have the three upper voices who are carrying the basically chordal structure. They're just making sure the long tones and like you said, the species counterpoint, but right. the melody and the subject and the, and the counter subject are in the lower voices. Yeah. It's in the continuo. It's in the, um, what is right. that? It's getting... Violin two, viola. Sure. It's going to push down. Right. Exactly. So it gives that whole section, this, this whole particular section, uh, a lower feel to it because it's lower instruments playing it, which also is something that people it'll you know their ears will notice like oh the other people have the part now, right? And then we get our second episode in measures eighty seven, where we get the same sort of uh, same material that we received from earlier with the violin sort of sort of playing around, and again what is the violin doing? The violin's not even playing a melody. The violin's playing. No, they're just going crazy. Yeah, the violin's just playing arpeggios. Arpeggios all the way up yeah. and down. E minor, B major, G major, B mi B major, back to E minor. Incredible. It's just it. That's very simple. And let's let's keep looking. Let's see what have you done. And then where have we seen this passage before? Yeah, 
again, what does Bach do here in these next few measures? He's then playing around with scales. Scales, that's, that's all, all it is. All freaking day. And then he's like, you know, I'm bored of scales. Let's play some more double stops. And he goes, and then he gives all this really crazy harmony to the violin part. You know, it's 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 insane this sort of level of intense playing by the violin. And then I like how while all that's going on, you get yim bada dim bada dim bumpy bum bum, and the violin's going, and it's like. And the violin's like, oh my god, here we go, keep going. And it's yeah, like, breathe. Right, he's like, I'm playing sevens, I'm playing sixths. Oh my god, it's insane. And then finally, the violin's like, oh, thank god, I get back to the same sort of... Exactly what he's doing. Like, look at, look at measure 120. We're back to exactly what we started with. Mm-hmm. But... This time, the cello and the continuar are playing the part of the recorder with those repeated notes, mm-hmm. right? Which and gives then, obviously a very different feel to when the recorder played it. Exactly. And then check out, let's see, 24, 25, 26, 27. 127 is what? 23, 24, 25, 26. Oh, there's the, yep, there's the subject again. We get the subject again. And then what do we see? in the um then we get our counter subject back mm-hmm. the um cello and the bass once again this writing is just so intricate and so great and then let me ask you this how long do we have to wait until we get back to g major like officially back to g major officially back to g major well that's... or back to the or back to our first century again or back to our what Back to our first subject entry again. Oh, um, well, it looks like the fir- the subject was oh, that one. What is that measure? One fifty-two. Ooh, I mean, the subject pattern is there, but it's but that's not in G major. Right. Uh, it could be an alteration of that one as well. Um, because we then we get an octave, right? Right. Right. And but then the it's actual... sort of almost similar to, so we can call that maybe a subject two at mm-hmm. some point. Yeah. But it looks like, well, there's another, at 172, 3, 4, 5, we have another reiteration of the subject. Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And I don't know, is this in, is this in G? Uh, I mean, it, eh. we look, what, what's the measure you're looking at, Hunter? 172, uh, 3, 4, 5, 175. Oh, I almost think we're in C major. Well, right, yeah, because it's, I mean, you're C octave, and then there's no accidentals. So we get this very long, sort of really frantic um, playing by the... um, (laughs) It's insane. I think 189 is our return to G major. Let's look at that. Oh, hell yeah, we are. Right, we're back into G major again. And mm-hmm. let's look at the last few bars. Let's see exactly mm-hmm. what Bach does. We see a lot of similar patterns from other parts again. Yep. Um, and then what, what happens at the end, Hunter? All the way at the very end? Let's look at measures 238 to the end. What does he do? 
238 to the end. Load page 238. And there, and there is. is, and like I said, there is no wrong answer. What do you think he's trying to do here? He is trying to wrap, kind of wrap it all into a ball and say, "Here you go. This is what we're doing. Here's here's your gift it's to the to the uh, um, Archduke." So what is he giving him at the end here? Well, I think you know, uh, like a lot of his his pieces, they end in a very, oh, excuse me, a very traditional way. Oh God, I'm yelling. Um, I don't know why. In a very traditional kind of way, so it would be right. a. We talked about this with other pieces, how you know they would have mm -hmm. expected a piece to end a certain way, otherwise they might have gotten mad. Um, but you know it does end on a regular, uh, you know, a normal one chord. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the one thing that I do notice about this is that you know, like we have in the rest of the piece, the violin solo part, violin one, are in unison. The two recorder parts are in unison, and you have have the three as well so it's this everyone coming back to sort of together in almost that choral sense again in order to end finally on the one however i did want to point out that the one rhythm that we don't really see much in this whole piece but we see here is the dotted quarter eighth right it, it doesn't show up all that often in the rest of the piece but here it does and why do you think that is just something that i'm sure he's kind of comfortable with writing because i'm sure that's one of his favorite rhythms yeah i do think it's something that he just likes to do i think it's very common for him to do that and um i think it works really well in this in this setting what do you think do you think it also gives a sense of slowing down without actually slowing down the tempo absolutely yeah right because then, you can keep the tempo the same but it forces you to sort of put a halt in the yeah. in the playing yeah, exactly what you were saying the other day about in something in the uh, Brandenburg Three about having to just kind of have that space to just find a way to slow down, mm -hmm. and that's that that penultimate measure. body, and basically it's so simple. Very lilty, but works perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah, and we get our lovely G major, um, although our contrast from the second movement, B major, was very strident. Um, you know, Hunter, before we end up sort of finishing up our thoughts on this piece, I want to talk about something that's really important to me, mm -hmm. which is something worth noticing with Bach is that we can admire Bach's genius all day, mm -hmm. but we can also admire Bach's simplicity in his writing. Yeah. Why is, th why is that? Why do you think well, I mean, it like we said, his whole not his shtick, but his whole um, mm -hmm. way of writing is basically predicated on scale work, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, there is, especially at the time, time he was writing beauty in simplicity, right? That's the whole definition of the classical era. So he was around at the tail end of the Baroque, where people were, you know, they liked the ornamentation and stuff, but people were were valuing the 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 beauty in simplicity that core value of that late 1700s early 1800s time period and part of the beauty of it is i think even if it's all based on scales scales are the fundamental roots of mo of all music right so um or at least in in our western music so um having music like this forces you to uh, from an educator standpoint, it forces you to be really comfortable with your basics, with your scales, 
um, with your arpeggiations, all the fundamentals that you know students are supposed to be really strong on before they move into more complicated music. And I think there's a beauty in that. But I, you might be referring more to the compositional aspect of it, in which case, what are you thinking of? Well, I guess I'm thinking the same thing that you were thinking about how we were talking about this plenty in this one about how he just uses scales. Mm -hmm. And to the common ear, it may be just like, wow, he's doing so much. But compositionally, no, he's not really not doing that much. Um, but he's allowing for interpretation. He's allowing for motivic development. And that mm -hmm. is where he gets us. And that's where we say, oh, Bach is a genius because he's doing all these intrinsic things. Like he's saying, he's mm -hmm. doing this and he's doing that, he's doing that. But when we sort of zoom in on one line, as we were talking about with the first movement, we zoom in on the the fast 30 second notes in this movement. And then from the first movement, we can just say, hey, you know, he's just writing scales, but it's working so well and it's so effective that we want to listen to more of it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at the time that was just something that Bach did. You know, Bach was like, I have a lot of things to do, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to write it out this way. And it will still sound good because I know that if I do something like this, it will sound simple and it will sound approachable to those who want to learn how to play this and also who are willing to put themselves out there and try to trust what Bach is trying to do with this movement. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about this movement? Because um, I am empty out, my friend. No, I think that's good. Okay, so we are going to take a stopping point now. Um, we will talk about Brandenburg 5, the longest, and Hunter is complaining about this uh, sort of cell phone going off right now. Um, but the next time we uh, talk, we will talk about Brandenburg 5, which is the longest of the Brandenburgs. I believe it's about 20, 22 something minutes. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that one, which is in D major. And uh, we'll see you next time. And thank you for listening. Thank you, Johann Sebastian Bach, for your number four, Brandenburg in G major. And uh, my name is Sean Kunis, that guy over there in his glasses and white t-shirt, as always, Hunter Zagona. And we'll see you next time, and keep listening to What You Love.